This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, due to a major snowstorm in Washington, D.C., we're coming to you remotely from Maryland, Virginia, and the D.C. area, with a special focus on the power of petroleum throughout Latin America. But first, Megan Eckhamel joins us from Northern Virginia, where she has the latest on upheaval facing that leading oil producer, Venezuela, and the rest of the news from around Latin America. Student protests against the government erupted into riots and violence this week in Venezuela, leaving at least three people dead. The government reacted by issuing arrest warrants for popular opposition leader Leopoldo López, saying he was part of a conspiracy behind the violence. Julia Buxton, the author of The Failure of Political Reform in Venezuela, reacted to the situation via Skype from Sheffield in England. We have seen, you know, many of these, the return to the kinds of claims and allegations that Venezuela is a dictatorship. Um, But problematically, we're seeing elements of the Venezuelan opposition move back to a strategy of trying to remove the government by force. Governor Capriles, who lost the last presidential election by a thin margin, also led some of the anti-government protests. The Venezuelan government also removed one cable station from its satellite and cable systems because it defied a government order to avoid coverage of the protests and riots. The FARC, or Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, accused former Colombian President Alvaro Uribe of spying on the peace talks between the left-wing group and the Colombian government. Current Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos ordered an investigation, but has yet to make accusations. Uribe supports military action against the FARC and opposes the peace talks. For him, they are not a strong enough punishment for their past crimes. A restaurant and internet cafe were set up next door to where the talks were being held and served as a front for the spies. Constitutional changes went into effect in Nicaragua this week that allow President Daniel Ortega to run for a fourth term. The changes remove all presidential term limits, along with removing the need for presidential candidates to take a minimum of 35% of the vote in elections. The new constitution also increases presidential decree power, removing checks from the country's National Assembly. Conservative and moderate parties in the country oppose the changes, saying they are a threat to democracy. President Ortega is a former guerrilla leader who also ruled the country in the 1980s. He regained the presidency in 2007. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Now our focus returns to Venezuela and the power of petroleum in the region. Professor Jeff Colgan of American University is the author of Petroaggression, When Oil Causes War. He joined us to discuss Venezuela and oil. Certainly oil has colored the relationship between Venezuela and the United States for a while. Since your book is about aggression, we've, we haven't really seen complete aggression between 
these two countries, but but certainly a soured relationship. Is that about oil or something else? Uh, well, certainly the the soured relationship under um, first President Hugo Chavez and now continuing under uh, uh, Maduro. Um, that was that's broader than just oil. Uh, certainly, the you know Chavez has this, had a view uh, of the United States as the the, the evil empire, uh, and that that covered a lot of things. But as part of that view, um, Chavez wanted to move the Venezuelan oil sector away from American investment, uh, and also f- away from um, the the exporting sales to to the U.S. Uh, threatened on numerous occasions to uh, place an embargo on the United States, uh, and he never carried through on any of those threats. But it was it was a kind of constant uh, talking point. You mentioned uh, the current Venezuelan president Nicolas Maduro. There's still this this post Chavez chill in this relationship, but yet the United States and Venezuela still doing a lot of businesses. Isn't the U.S. still the number one customer for Venezuelan oil? That's correct. Uh, And so I think the last figures I saw, I think were last year, uh, the United States was importing around 900,000 barrels per day from Venezuela, uh, making Venezuela the the number four source, foreign source of U.S. oil uh, after Canada being the number one. And then I I think it's Mexico and it might be Saudi Arabia's number three. I'm not sure about that one. Uh, But Venezuela's number four. Uh, and from the Venezuelan side, uh, the U.S. is, is the biggest uh, single customer. Uh, China is now number two, uh, and, and India is moving up the ranks as well. So there's increasingly a, an Asian focus for, uh, for Venezuela, but, um, but um, the kind of the local geography is still very advantageous uh, for the United States market. We've talked about the Chinese relationship with the Venezuelans on this program before, uh, but we haven't really gone into much depth. And so I'm, I'm wondering how you view that relationship. Um, my totals say that the Venezuelans owe $40 billion in loans to the Chinese and they're paying it off in oil. Is, was that a good deal in your view or how do you see it? Well, I'm not sure I could speak to the kind of the specifics of the, of the deal, but the, um, the relationship is an interesting one where, you know, Chavez and now Maduro and in, in, uh, continuing this this push to attract Chinese investment into the, the oil sector, get the Chinese uh, oil companies like CNOOC and Sinopec, the, the state-owned Chinese companies, to be players in the Venezuelan oil patch. Uh, and this is a real shift. I mean, this is uh, a move away from the kind of the Exxons and Chevrons of the world uh, to try to get uh, a different cast of characters in, involved in Venezuela. And I'm not sure it's been terribly successful. I mean, the, the Chinese were certainly interested, but they wanted to come in on, on you know, reasonable commercial terms. And the Venezuelan government has been uh, blowing a little hot and cold about what, how it views uh, foreign investors. So um, we mentioned that the U.S. is, is the largest customer, yeah. but... Um, I, I think I have recent material here from various sources that say U.S. sales from Venezuela are the lowest now in almost 38, 28 years, I believe. Um, that's from Bloomberg. Um, talked about this very recently. Um, and also, uh, it, since you mentioned Canada, um, something from the Globe and Mail in Canada that says oil productivity per capita in Venezuela is as low as it's been since 1940. So, is the Venezuelan oil sector, even though noted as the the richest and deepest in the world, is it really functioning the way that it could? 
I think most oil industry experts would say that the the sector is is really poorly performing, underperforming uh, relative to the um, the quality of the oil reserves that are there and the the uh, ease of accessing them. That's not to say they're easy, but that uh, in terms of the uh, availability of, of supplies. Look, most international oil companies at this stage are hungrily looking around the world for more oil patches to develop. And if they could get into Venezuela on, on terms that they view as acceptable, they would love to do so. Uh, the the uh, very large, um, heavy oil supplies in Venezuela, which are the largest in the world, uh, are actually much more attractive on kind of geological and physical uh, uh, dimensions than say the Canadian tar sands, which are also you know a big patch of oil uh, in, in northern Alberta. Uh, but the, the amount of oil being produced out of the Canadian tar sands is far greater than the heavy sand patch in uh, the heavy oil patch in, in Venezuela um, because you know they just haven't made it a commercially attractive uh, uh, venture. And I would guess that the Venezuelan situation is a little less of an impact on the environment than the Canadian oil sands? Well, that's interesting. Uh, so the, the Canadian tar sands are certainly kind of a dirty production, uh, but it probably demand, uh, depends a little bit on, on, on what dimension of environmental impact you're thinking about. Uh, it's, it, Canadian so, uh, tar sands are, are big, heavy uh, uh, water users, right? So really intensive on water, whereas uh, the Venezuelan heavy oil uh, might be slightly worse on some other dimensions, um, on, on emissions, et cetera. Uh, you mentioned that that um, getting into the Venezuelan space is a bit of a challenge, and and there are um, state oil firms from Indonesia, Russia, other places that are in this in, in this space in Venezuela, but seem to be having some difficulties. What what are those difficulties? Well, in in part. Um this reflects, I mean, so the, the players that are, uh, the industry players that are in Venezuela right now uh, were chosen uh, as part of kind of the, the multipolar view of Chavez uh, and his, his, his government, right? He wanted to diversify uh, Venezuela's alliances, move away from the traditional relationship with the United States and move towards, frankly, the, the um, those, those who are kind of more hostile to the United States. Uh, and so he went to the Iranians, he went to the Russians, he went to uh, some some players who are traditionally not as, as uh, friendly with the U.S. Um, and I think that the net result of that um, is that the investors are not performing on commercial terms quite the way that... Um, that certainly the, the Venezuelan government would like them to, um, and in part that's sort of their own doing because they chose them on political grounds, uh, and so politics is trumping the, the kind of the economics of, of the situation. So the business deals are not are not working out. That's right. Some of them are not working out at all, uh, and some of them are just underperforming on what they expected. Right. So they expected to be able to produce more um, oil than than they are actually delivering. The other component of this, which is hard to kind of put your finger on, but there's a a fear factor because uh, foreign investors saw what happened to Exxon and the other um, uh, American companies when uh, the Venezuelan government uh, um, expropriated uh, the, the or revoked their licenses and, and kind of um, renegotiated their contracts on terms that were so unfavorable that most of them have now left the, the, the uh, country. So um, I'm, I'm wondering about your book. And the issue of petroaggression. Mm -hmm. You have studied Venezuela a lot. What type of aggression are we seeing because of 
oil in the Venezuelan state and in that space? Well, very luckily, uh, or, uh, or fortunately, I guess we should say, that we, we haven't seen a war. Uh, we haven't seen, you know, a real military conflict uh, with, with Venezuela uh, and its neighbors. Uh, so we should all be grateful for that. Uh, we did, unfortunately, see a lot of hostility between Venezuela and Colombia, particularly around 2008, 2009, uh, where, you know, at one point Chavez was going on the air and, and ordering up tank divisions to the border uh, and threatening war with Colombia. Uh, uh, and this had to do with uh, the, the the FARC uh, and the, the conflict in Colombia. Uh, we, we recently, um, last week, just had a program about this changing relationship between Colombia and, and Venezuela and the FARC. And so there are certainly peace talks on now that weren't on in that in right. that particular space and a different president with a different view of the Venezuelans in that space. So. That, in your view, that's simmered out. That has stabilized for sure. Uh, what has uh, been a, a you know a linkage here with with oil is that um, as the price of oil rose from nineteen ninety eight when it was very very low under ten dollars a barrel uh, to say two thousand and eight when it peaked at roughly one hundred and forty seven barrels uh, one hundred and forty seven dollars per barrel uh, for a little while. Um, uh, the Venezuelan government went on a, a military spending spree as its its revenues flowed in, and so you can really see this in the you know the billions of dollars that that were you know so there's two things going on. One was just the the absolute uh, volume of military purchases went way up, and and two uh, there was a shift away from the United States. So again, kind of a political decision. We're not going to buy our weapons from the U.S. anymore. We're going to uh, invest in relationships with uh, Russia and China. And and, and Iran. So are you saying to me that the Venezuelan military is much more powerful than it was when Hugo Chavez took over? I'm saying that it, it has certainly a, a great deal more equipment and a great deal more, um, uh, it's better financed. Uh, there is, however, a question about whether it's it's using those uh, uh, weapons effectively. Uh, and that's harder to judge. I, I honestly, I'm not sure I could make a, a judgment on that, but there's a, a potential that even though they've become, uh, you know, they have bigger toys and more lavish uh, um, resources, they've actually become less effective on the military battlefield uh, because, in part, they're retraining their pilots from, you know, English training manuals now to Chinese training manuals so that they can fly, uh, you know, Chinese jet fighters uh, rather than the, the American ones. The, the good news, I think, from... Um, uh, for Venezuela's story is that one would expect that the, the, over time the revolutionary fervor and the revolutionary politics starts to to, to lose its its oomph. Uh, it doesn't have that you know there's kind of a an arc to these things. Uh, w- uh, and so the real concern from my perspective was when when we look around the world uh, at petrostates and there are uh, more of them right. So as as more countries are coming on with more oil um, and we're, we're seeing at least potential uh, exporters of oil in, in Africa in particular that that weren't exporting before, um, those governments might might go revolutionary, right? So you never know when one of these is going to pop up, uh, and that's the real concern. And so for a while, it looked like Venezuela might have been heading down that track, and fortunately, you know, my best guess at this situa- uh, situation now is that unfortunately the, the politics are not very positive in Venezuela, but it's, it's not as um, revolutionary as it, it looked like it was going in kind of the heyday under Chavez. We, we've talked about this peripherally, but the state oil monopoly, PDVSA, um, some are highly critical of it. 
uh, it has become more of a political football than it has in the past, which, which is saying something given Venezuela's history. So I'm wondering how you see PDVSA and, and do you have a critique of their performance? Yeah, I mean, I would say that from an oil industry perspective, most people uh, view their performances having declined since, you know, the, the mid to late 90s uh, pre-Chavez. Uh, and... Um, they are not as efficient. They are not hitting their production targets. They're not uh, producing oil. I mean, you, you cited earlier the the sites uh, the the figures on um, oil productivity per worker uh, very very low, uh, and so it's a real concern. And, and the the issue is that the PDVSA you know generates obviously a lot of revenue, uh, and what the Maduro government continuing what Chavez did uh, is to to tend to use that as a piggy bank, go in and and siphon off uh, revenues uh, and direct them towards social programs or, or other kind of um, uh, kind of politically charged uh, items. And look, you know, there's a case to be made that obviously you know we want anti-poverty programs. There's there's there is a case to, for that, uh, but in terms of how it's affecting the the productivity of PDVSA is not positive. Thank you so much, Professor Jeff Colgan of American University and the author of Petroaggression, When Oil Causes War. Our guest today on Latin Pulse, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-CALLWWF. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. As we look at the importance of oil in Latin America, we turn to Dr. Ramon Espinasa of the Inter-American Development Bank, who also teaches at Georgetown University. Her excerpts from our conversation. The performance of uh, the Latin American oil sector in general has been uneven. There are a number of countries that have performed very well over the last uh, 12 years or so, and there are some that have not done that well. The countries that have performed better are countries such as Brazil, Colombia, and Peru. And, and they share some common uh, features. Uh, they, they have a regulatory agency, and they have uh, open to private investment. That has enhanced the uh, production of these countries uh, by uh, bringing in uh, financial uh, uh, capital, engineering capacity, and access to peak technology. And that explains a good deal of the, of the uh, increase in oil production responding to much higher prices of these uh, three countries, at least, uh, Brazil, Colombia, and Peru. There are other countries that have not done that well, uh, Mexico, Venezuela, Ecuador, and, and Argentina. And and partially the reason is that the sector is close to uh, to investment. They have not been able, uh, with local savings, to in, 
uh, increased capacity to respond uh, to much better market opportunities. If I had to highlight uh, one or two uh, countries, first would be Colombia. Colombia has done extremely well after the uh, institutional reform of 2005, and they have increased production almost twofold since uh, uh, the year 2007. And, uh, and, and then the country that is about to change. The recent reform in Mexico that is uh, yet to be implemented, but the, the bulk of the reform was passed, and it includes a constitutional reform to allow private investment into the sector, was passed in Mexico last December, and now that they are discussing what they call the secondary laws, and, and that would, could open a very uh, uh, promising uh, opportunity for the Mexican uh, oil sector. Why do you think the Mexican sector has lagged behind these others that you mentioned, Brazil, Colombia, Peru? Why, why is it? Because they, they for a long time have had the second largest reserves in, in the hemisphere, or am I wrong about the number of reserves? Uh, uh, yes, uh, but it's not just a matter of uh, reserves uh, underground, but uh, developing the reserves and putting them on the surface. And, and one of the reasons of the collapse of the Mexican production since 2005 has fallen by almost 25% uh, has been a, a lack of investment capacity by the national oil company Pemex and also a lack of engineering capacity and access to, to peak technologies. And that has had as a consequence not just the fall of production, but the fall of proven reserves. Uh, Mexico has much larger potential geological potential than it uh, looks at present. I would also like to ask you about another country on on your list of positive countries, and that would be Brazil. Brazil just opened up um, Mm -hmm. a number of new reserves. Uh, Can you tell us about that and how significant that might be? Consequence of of, uh, new technologies, and that comes, uh, relates to the notion of peak oil. And and new technology allowed for for, uh, Brazil as a country and, and Petrobras, the oil company, to discover reserves that uh, we as uh, oil engineers couldn't see some 15 years ago. These are uh, deep water reserves, the so-called pre-sold reserves uh, offshore, uh, uh, Rio de Janeiro and the state of uh, uh, and, and, and Santos, uh, uh, in deep water, but uh, very deep underneath underneath the 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 sea bed uh, uh, these reserves need to be developed the the Brazilian government uh, opened the first of these reserves to in an auctioning process at the end of last year and for some reasons that I'm going to explain the the uh, uh, bidding process was was not that uh, successful as, as as might have been expected. One of the reasons is that it was very restrictive. The 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 uh, conditions under which uh, 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 international private capital capital was allowed in was just as a as a. Um, Capitalist stakeholder, the co- private companies were not allowed to to operate. It. That was reserved to, to reserved to uh, Petrobras, and some companies uh, perceive a, a, a risk in these conditions. Uh, and the, at the end of the day, there was one bidder uh, that somehow contradicted the the history of Brazil in the years prior to this uh, recent uh, uh, bidding process in which private companies were allowed 
uh, to operate on themselves, and it was a big success. It was somehow uh, uh, backpedaling by by the Brazilian government, and in light of that uh, result, I think they are going to change the the conditions for uh, future bidding processes. But uh, 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 just leaving that aside, this recent development, the success of Brazil, it, it's enormous since the reform of uh, uh, 1997 under President Fernando Enrique Cardoso when uh, the sector was open up for, for uh, uh, private investment. And again, the main beneficiary, and as I'm sure will be the case in Mexico, the main beneficiary of the opening of the Brazilian sector was the state-owned company Petrobras that was forced to compete, and it went up to the standards of the best uh, oil companies uh, in the world. Thank you so much, Dr. Ramon Espinasa of the Inter-American Development Bank and Georgetown University, our guest today on Latin Pulse. It has been my pleasure, Rick. Thank you very much. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. Last month's meeting in Havana of the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, CELAC, was a celebration of the single point of consensus within the community, opposition to U.S. policies that seek to isolate and punish Cuba. This universal opprobrium of Washington's economic embargo and myriad other restrictions on Cuba is reason enough to suspect U.S. policies may be wrong-headed and contrary to American interests. They have produced a situation in which no Latin American country, not even the region's most robust democracies or Washington's closest allies, are willing to criticize Cuba's repression its human rights violations, or the economic penury affecting most of its population. Across the region, Cuba is treated as a normal country precisely because the U.S. treats it as an outcast. U.S. policy toward Cuba has other noxious effects. It fuels the deep-seated antagonism of some Latin American governments toward Washington and forces distrust among many others. It is a constant reminder of the U.S. Cold War behavior, when U.S. security concerns trumped all other interests, including democracy, human rights, and economic progress. And also, when the U.S. frequently intervened in the region, sometimes to support the ousting of elected leaders with military force. The policy is accomplished nothing of value. For half a century, the Cuban government has resisted U.S. coercion to the admiration of most Latin Americans. Even today, U.S. hostility provides the Cuban leadership with a credible excuse, even vindication, for its entrenched political control, severe limitations on dissent, and a broken economy. But if U.S. policy has been a 55-year failure, the Cuban people have also been badly served by the governments of Fidel and Raul Castro. Most of the population lives in or near poverty, with the elderly in particularly desperate straits. Young people mostly want to leave the island. The Cuban government could once point to substantial social achievements, 
in health, nutrition, and education. Although Cuba still boasts the lowest infant mortality rate in Latin America, and its students score the highest on international tests, these gains are eroding. According to a recent survey of the Atlantic Council, a majority of Americans want a normal relationship with Cuba. Although there are no reliable surveys of Cuban views, the best guess is that most Cubans would like to live in a normal country. Neither the U.S. embargo nor the Cuban government is doing much to get them there. The opinions expressed by Peter Hakem are his own and are not the official opinions of this program. And now an important editorial note. Listeners should know that I conducted a tour to discuss free speech and media issues in Venezuela in the fall of last year. That tour was partially funded by the U.S. Agency on International Development, or USAID. If you feel like that it has affected our coverage of Venezuela, we'd like to hear from you. If you'd like to respond to our Latin American Perspectives commentary, this announcement, or any part of this program, you may contact us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us inside the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>